Hey, welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. We've been discussing uh, substance use disorders over the last uh, several podcasts. Uh, In particular, last podcast, we addressed nicotine, tobacco. Uh, Use of tobacco is one of the primary, formerly, I should say it that way, previously used to be uh, one of the primary modes of (laughs) getting nicotine was smoking Uh, cigarettes, tobacco products. Uh, You could chew, you could rub, uh, as with chewing tobacco or snuff. Uh, But of late, formerly, presently, of late, uh, we have had considerable attention focused upon vaping. Uh, Vaping, of course, could include things, substances, other than nicotine, Uh, But I believe that nicotine may have been an impetus for vaping in the first place, uh, a safer alternative to cigarettes, uh, not because of necessarily uh, just the uh, nicotine, of course, but all the other things that happen when you burn tobacco. (laughs) And with that, the health risks, and uh, particularly the increased risk for respiratory problems, Uh, other associated health problems, particularly lung cancer, and even to the extent or degree that there is a warning on tobacco products that you smoke and would otherwise, again, chew, or with snuff, we (laughs) call it rubbing, Uh, some call it rubbing, Uh, that it can cause cancer, which may not directly kill you, (laughs) may indeed be treatable, Uh, depending on the type of cancer, but certainly uh, some cancers do result in death or death is attributed to them. And thus, there is a warning. Can cause cancer, can be lethal. So, vaping, (laughs) as I guess conceptualized, would allow you to take in the nicotine, which we know is the primary reason for one's dependence upon tobacco products that that, uh, formerly were the predominant because it is the psychoactive substance that the body develops a tolerance to. And with that, if you don't get it, you're going to go through withdrawal. And, And as I've said in previous podcasts, some say the withdrawal is as bad as nicotine withdrawal. I suspect that regardless of what you're withdrawing from at any one particular moment or time, you might think it's the worst. And with that, it could be, uh, I'm not sure, and again, the same sort of manner, that you could subjectively measure that uh, fairly, just that objectively. Uh, And certainly there's no objective measurement except self-reports when it comes to feeling bad, um, at least none that we have presently available to us. So whether it is or isn't, and the only reason I'm spending a bit of time presenting that in that manner, a fact in that manner, is that when it comes to nicotine and we'll say opiates, both are equally bad for you in that 
they do represent, to, represent tolerance and withdrawal. But would it be any more difficult to quit nicotine than an opiate? It may impact treatment or treatment strategies. If there were to be anything then that you could, as they say in more vernacular, <laughs> addictions vernacular, white knuckle it, which just means uh, uh, just not use the substance, uh, it might be nicotine. Uh, more people, most people, are able to stop cigarette smoking without the need for clinical treatment simply by abstaining. White knuckle, white knuckling, cold turkey, cold turkeying, I guess. <laughs> you could call it that, say that, that way. So, nicotine is not as difficult to give up, but then the other side, and this may be probably is more psychologically rationalization, as with defense, as with, again, in terms of psychology, a defense mechanism, but nonetheless, denial, as always attached to any sort of substance use problem, because it's become a primary way of coping, and there's certainly a lot in the world that's stressful that we need to cope with, one may be inclined then to rationalize a form of defense mechanism, denial, that again is so positively correlated with substance use and also, I guess, with the fact that if you don't use the substance, you've got to come up with better ways of addressing or dealing with stress. Rationalization would be, well, it's not that bad, so, so it's not going to kill me. Well, maybe they used to think that. You could even say, maybe more specifically, getting to the me part, it might kill everyone else, but it's not going to kill me. And you could probably say that about anything that you're otherwise trying to rationalize. So, you know, maybe it's not as hard to give up, but maybe in some ways there may be more rationalization. Again, I'm not sure. But whether that's true or not, it does segue us, as they say in the business, into the discussion of treatment. If the majority of individuals can quit nicotine on their own, and certainly can do, factually so, quit nicotine without needing any additional clinical interventions, whether it would be in the way of uh, nicotine replacement or a medicine, medicinal, biochemical sort of intervention, or more traditional psychological counseling, psychotherapy intervention. <laughs> Why has it been so hard? Why don't people do it? And therein, thence, we get back to this idea of what it does, the nicotine, how our defense mechanisms work, rationalization, denial, and really the levels of stress. 
that one is subjected to. Now, of course, the best of those three options would be manage your stress levels as far as facilitating then one's quitting nicotine. Uh, Psychological counseling can help you do that. Just being healthy can help you do that, not only in physical terms, but mental health terms, psychological terms. Uh, Don't overexpose yourself to undue stress. Manage your stress as it arises, as it comes up. Don't put anything on the back burner. Don't avoid. Just deal with it as it comes. Make sure when you go to bed at night, you've addressed it as best you can. Now, you can't fix it all in either one day or overnight. It's not going to all go away. But at the same time, if we try to do that in a real-time sort of way, it doesn't backlog. And hence, it won't catch up with us. And as that tends to be the case, (laughs) stress does tend to keep coming. It stacks. I've used that term before on our podcast. You get one incident, and then before you get a chance to resolve that situation, circumstance, to manage that stress associated, something else comes along. And true, some days are worse than others. Some weeks are worse than others. Some months are worse than others. Some years are worse than others. And if we don't do a good job if we're not prudent, if we're not responsible, if we're not diligent in managing our stress on a day-to-day basis, I guarantee you it will catch up with you. And when it catches up with you, then we start to look for ways of escape, quick fixes. I'm not saying that we entirely give up on managing either the situations or circumstances that bring with it stress or our stress levels in that direct way of managing those situations and circumstances. But if you let them backlog, if they stack, then it's going to take a while to work through them. And you can be mindful. You can be meditative. You can be distracted. You could turn it off or learn better to ignore it, but responsibly not forget it not forget to turn it back on. But as, as you can tell, all of that becomes a bit complicated if only because we're dealing with you or me. And my inclination as a human is when I'm overstressed to run away from my problems or to want to kill them. And I can't kill all my problems, nor should I. Some of them are just developmental. They're, they're the things that otherwise create virtue and character that teach me about life, how to face problems, how to overcome. They, they apply to my knowledge or gaining of knowledge. Uh, they're good for society. They're tied to our work ethic. Uh, there's good outcomes. <laughs> if you want to succeed in life, you have to grow, mature, adapt, learn, development, developmentally from childhood all the way to adulthood. And then even as an adult, we continue to refine those skill sets. We have to adjust to changes, things that are beyond our control. Uh, You get the picture. 
It's all good. I couldn't kill all that, nor should I. That's not the answer. The answer is many times, most times, for the sake of life, mine as well as others, negotiate. You have to work through and collaborate, not only with yourself, the psychological, the emotional, the will to run, to kill, versus to stay and learn and work through and grow and adapt, but also not only inside of ourselves, but with other people in our families and from our families to our friends and from our friends to our communities and from our communities to our nation and to our nation or from our nation to a more international stage. (laughs) Again, you get the picture. It's pretty simple stuff, but it starts with the individuals. And as they're able to then join together to help one another to manage problems. We need to teach our children how to manage problems, not run from them, and particularly not rationalize, justify why, well, this is really too hard, or I don't even want to admit this. I just want to do what I want to do because it's easier, and you're not allowing me to do what I want to do, and in that sort of way, then you're somehow prejudiced against me, or you won't let me run my course, you've run your course, or now that you've started to throw rocks at me, I'll throw rocks at you, and in the end, the only real measure, again, of adaptability is, (laughs) does it work? Does it facilitate more life? And it is true. Humans are equally self-destructive in that we don't manage things oftentimes well. We're not inclined to do the hard work of growth. We're more inclined to run from it. The more resources you have, whether you've earned them or not, and the earning part is only so that you can learn how to do them well or better, Maybe you inherited them. But if you don't ever learn and your primary out is to run from, it doesn't matter what the substance is, you're going to turn to it. It doesn't matter what the situation or circumstance is that brings you some degree of diversion, as in divert your attention, some sort of absent-mindedness, some sort of pretend it's not real or it's really not there, those things that are threatening or stressful, whatever it is to escape the situation that you might do, you're probably not only going to do it, but if it comes to substances, as we've been discussing in the series of podcasts on substance use or misuse disorders, what you're going to find is that for most of them as psychoactive substances, changing your feelings not necessarily your thoughts, but your feelings, which then can't influence your thoughts. The defense mechanisms, as with psychologically, attach more to thoughts, can be facilitative of avoiding. (laughs) As you can tell, people don't grow up to address their problems. They rely on drugs. But in the same sort of a way, the psychological, (laughs) this trickery of the mind, this fabrication, this denial, this pretend, this rationalization, this fantasy, this imaginary world that you can create, the bubble in which you want to put yourself, creates somewhat of a psychological dependence. If you've lived in the bubble, so to speak, for a while, and somebody 
comes along and tries to pop it or burst it, you're not going to like them. Why? Because there's a harsh reality, a real world out there that does come back to a primary measure of, does it help you survive, not according to the terms that you want to survive by or how you want to define life to be, but by the terms of the natural terms of what life is really defined by. And those really kind of come back to a real basic evolutionary perspective. If you don't adapt, you die. And in the meantime, if you don't do things adaptively along the way, when it comes time, and everything naturally passes on, you're not going to really embrace that very well. You can cause undue grief to yourself, harm to yourself, as well as grief and harm to others if you're not cooperative, <laughs> if you don't play by the rules, not your rules, not even mine and your rules if we put them together and agree upon something, but we're all bound to the dictates of the natural. That's science. There's some things you have some influence over. Maybe then it's only temporary until it finally catches up with you, the consequences. But in the end, it's all those things Einstein came up with. All those ideas about conservation of energy, all those things, the rules, the laws of physical science, we are abound to them just because we don't like them. They're not convenient for us. Does not mean we're not bound to them. That will be the ultimate standard or judgment. Substances, unfortunately, if abused and misused in the way we've been talking about them, over the podcasts, that's the trouble you get into. <laughs> that's the problem you get into. They're not adaptive. But in the same sort of a way, codependency, it's a clinical term. Again, we've mentioned it in our podcasts, worthy of mentioning again. If you get enough people to agree with you, you may help one another for a while. You may cover one another for a while. But in the end, if you're doing something that implicitly is maladaptive according to the ultimate, again, standard of adaptability, which is life, it's not going to work. People who have homes where there is families, where there is an active practice of addiction, in order for them to survive, they are codependent. They create or participate in creating a bubble that allows the abuser, the one who's active in addiction, and maybe all of them, they may be codependent too. Oftentimes there is an identified, what we call patient, identified patient, the one with the primary problem, but everybody else has a problem because they're enabling <laughs> that individual. That's psychological dependence codependency. And you can be codependent with yourself. You can, again, lie to yourself. That's what defense mechanisms are. And yes, they're adaptive to the extent there's some situations that in the immediacy of the situation and circumstance, you can't survive it. But in a long-term basis, you've got to get back around to dealing with it. Or as we started the podcast today, it stacks, it accumulates. 
Nicotine is one of those things that helps us to not deal with reality. And presumably, that's why if there's a success rate of approximately 90%, some would say, of just simply abstinence, why more people don't do it, especially if they know it's killing them. Ignorance, there was a time when we did not know when it wasn't put on the packaging that it's going to kill you, where we had not empirically, scientifically established, established the connection between the use of a tobacco substance and cancer or other health concerns that might be lethal, depending on the person. Yes, genetics, et cetera, et cetera. But you can claim ignorance. I didn't know better, but now we do. And as much as we know better, we should be able to stop. So why did vaping catch on? <laughs> because it's easier than stopping. It seemed water vapor certainly is not going to harm you, right? Well, they found out that may not be true. I don't know if all of the data is in yet. I don't know if entirely it's going to come to the place or has come to the place soon, if not already has, come to the place where they're going to give similar labels or warnings on vape products. They certainly have for, again, underage vaping, under legal age. But vaping can cause respiratory problems. And some of the substances that go into the vaping, the psychoactive aspect of it, nicotine replacement via vape, isn't always so chemically pure. There's byproducts. There's other associated chemicals that go into, not to mention, people have moved beyond nicotine. They're now vaping other substances. It is a great way, at least in terms of getting the substances into your system, a very efficient, efficacious manner and means to get a direct hit. It goes right in your lungs. It goes right in your blood vessels. It goes right through your system. And to some extent, it doesn't have all the dangers that are associated with other means of ingestion, including shooting up. But it's pretty quick. And it's just about as effective, if not identically so. Maybe better. I don't know that. So again, human nature being human nature, we've crossed a line. We're still running from our problems, dealing with our problems, learning to deal with our problems. So now they have pharmaceuticals. Legally, FDA-approved prescription medications, nicotine replacement medications that you can get nicotine in your system. You can get your nicotine fix, patches, pills, etc. And it's not always nicotine. There are other uh, systems that these pharmaceuticals can act upon that can substitute or compensate for what the nicotine was doing, even if it's not directly nicotine. Nonetheless, we have the same issue. You've got to use them. 
One, you've got to quit smoking. Nothing worse than someone on nicotine replacement smoking. You're just doubling down. Why? Because you can get a more effective high. It's like synergistic. You combine the two. And there's psychological dimensions, the habit of it, all that plays in. We'll talk a little bit more when we get into the behavioral treatments about habits. Again, the psychological dimension. But nicotine replacement is only as effective as your intention would be to give it up. It's not designed to be a long-term strategy. And if you don't come up with a better way of addressing stress, as we've been discussing in the podcast today, you're going to turn right back to when the prescription's over, when you've run its course, or when it's run its course, or if you've completed the course, you're going to be left with needing something. Why? Because you've not effectively addressed it. If not learned psychologically how to manage your stress. So, nicotine replacement is an adjunct to psychological counseling. It's an adjunct to managing stress even in a prevention sort of manner before you get to the point of nicotine dependence. But certainly if you're there, then don't let it go on chronically to the point where it kills you. Stop it. Stop it as quickly as you can. Hopefully, if you're not there, if you've used cigarettes as a way of coping, you're not too progressed in the disease disorder sort of aspect of nicotine dependence, physiological, psychological, as a substance use, misuse problem, then stop it. If you require nicotine replacement to do that, certainly do that but you're also going to need psychological counseling. Yes, behavior therapy, more cognitive behavior therapy. You have to engage your brain's capacities. You have to either, for the first time, develop problem-solving skills, apply them, and if you've had them before but you've gotten lax, You've turned to something else rather than continuing to insist on resolving the problem. You've gotten rusty, so to speak, at doing those things that you need to do to manage your stress daily as they come up, the problems. And certainly, if you can't catch them all within a day, to persist to stay with them until they are resolved, you can balance it out with some escape, some mindfulness, but even that runs the risk of too much If you retreat to complete fantasy, you can't do that. It won't work. So, the combination. Do as much as you can prevention, managing stress, learn in the first place, adapt, grow, mature. Uh, Hopefully, if you're still parenting, parent your kids in these basic essential sort of paradigms the skill sets that are associated, the behaviors, healthy, adaptive, psychological, as well as physical behaviors, health, wellness sort of activities. Prevent it. Warn them. Tell them about it. And if you're an adult, study on those. 
Make those adjustments while you're trying to give up smoking or chewing or whatever you do. Vaping. Go if you need to. Consult with a physician, a medical doctor, to find out if there are nicotine replacement products that would be good for you. Or if not nicotine replacement, at least medications that can assist in compensating for the withdrawal so that you can get past it. But you need the psychological counseling if it's remediation. You have to kind of go back and fix something that maybe once was but now is broken in terms of how to handle life and life problems. And if you've never learned, then you can include that in your health and wellness. Psychological counseling emphasizes basic principles, precepts, premises of health and wellness. Apply them. That's the cognitive part. You learn. If you stay with the psychological counseling, if you bring your problems into that situation, in a real-time sort of way, the psychological counselor, the counselor, psychologist, social worker, psychiatrist, can help you to apply them. Take the problem, educate you on how to apply the strategies, break it down into stages so that you can address it, problem-solving, abstract thought, reasoning, rationality, empiricism, the hypothetico-deductive model of science. Just because you're not a scientist does not mean that you can't use it. It's what we all should be. My opinion is implicitly it's in us all. We just ignore it. We are empirical creatures by nature. We know how to experiment. It just Some people just, you might be one of them that just turns it off. You choose not to. And that's the problem. You have to choose to. Choosing to isn't it, it does not establish remedy entirely in and of itself. But if you don't choose to get help, if you don't choose to stop using, you're not going to get better. You can go and get nicotine replacement. You can read up on all the health and wellness strategies. You can seek psychological counseling. But if you're not really intentioned to stop, it's not going to work. Or if you're still practicing such the level of denial, you're not dealing with reality. You want to live in the bubble. Psychology counseling, psychological counseling is going to be intrusive. We're going to pop the bubble and you won't like it. And you might not, probably won't, come back. You'll run from it, him, her, the person who's providing, supplying the counseling. You'll run from them just like you run from your problems. That won't solve anything. Now, when it comes to ASAM, American Society of Addiction Medicine, and I want to be consistent Throughout all of our podcasts, I believe that we need to continue to apply the ASAM model. But in terms of ASAM, they're probably not going to put you in an institution to stop smoking unless, and it's possible, I suppose, there are such health complications that they have to or you're going to kill yourself. And somebody says, hey, 
It's gotten so bad, I'm going to put you in the hospital and they're going to make you stop. And even then, it's probably only going to be on the basis of are you past the threat of dying and they'll release you and then, as we've been saying, you'll recidivate, you'll go back, you'll relapse. But most often when we talk about treatment for, again, nicotine dependence, we're looking at early intervention, 0.5 on the ASAM matrix, as well as outpatient. But again, the dimensions of the potential for intoxication withdrawal, the biomedical conditions that are associated, we've already discussed some of those even in today's podcast. Your emotional behavioral state, are you using the psychoactive substance to cope? Maybe you have a concurrent or comorbid condition. Maybe you have depression and anxiety that's diagnosable, but that you're self-medicating. Particularly your readiness for change, whether you are at all interested in changing. Your ability to maintain abstinence with minimal support. Your living environment. All of those still apply. It's just that you can do it on your own. These other factors, the facilitative sort of dimensions or the measures of if it's going to be there, factors that would then contribute to your abstaining or abstinence from the psychoactive substance. If they're there, there's more yeses and a positive, I won't say yes, but there's more positive factors over those that I just got through reading, the six that I just mentioned. You're probably going to have more success. Can you have success without any of them? Probably so, maybe on willpower alone. But if they're not, then not only may you need to address them in that codependency sort of measure that we spoke of earlier, bring your family in, have them participate in some way to know what they need to do to make the modifications necessary to hold you accountable to the program and yourself and your decision to stop, to make adaptive changes. But the psychological counseling then is when you need a little more. So really, in ASAM matrix terms, we're going to be addressing this mostly out of 0.5 early intervention and 1.0 outpatient. You can include then that idea of medication assist, though it's not in this case uh, addressing opiates as we did with the Suboxone uh, in earlier podcasts when we were talking about opioid use disorders or disorder, but it would have the opportunity for, again, some medicines, pharmaceuticals that would be assistance to you. We want you to use them. But you have to, again, be ready for that. Desire to do that. Prepare yourself to do that. Change your way of thinking to eliminate the factors of defense mechanisms, denial, rationalization, any of those. And there is a list, but those are the two predominant ones that I can think of at this moment attached to or associated with substance use disorders. Educate yourself, educate your family. It's all part of a a comprehensive strategy. Now, if you have what we again call comorbid conditions, if 
nicotine becomes a way of self-medicating for depression or anxiety or anything else, you need to see a psychological counselor anyhow. Because until you treat that, then that's going to continue to set you up at risk of using, relapsing. It's going to be a trigger. And we want to address that in the right way because the self-medicating isn't working on top of all of that. So, we want you to receive a proper diagnosis. If you can't do that for yourself, then come see somebody, again, such as myself. Anybody who are, would be at those levels of independently licensed in the respective state in which you live, they have independent licensure to make that diagnosis, make that call, develop treatment recommendations, get the assistance you need. However, if you want to do that on your own, you could do that on your own. But that's, again, where with the behavior and the cognitive behavior therapy, what we're looking at is your personality. <laughs> now, the unfortunate aspect of that is that if you're an adult, it's already established. And if you've been smoking or using, again, leaves the option of other means of ingestion, uh, taking the substance in, like vaping, for a long period of time, it's become part of who you are. It, it becomes part of your personality. You're not you unless you have a cigarette. You're not you unless you have a cigar. You're not you, used to be pipes, unless you have a pipe. <laughs> you're not you unless you're vaping, which literally <laughs> used to say, smoking like a freight train. Vaping gives the appearance of those old steam locomotives. But if that's you, if that's what you've come to identify as part of who you are, if that's the folks you hang out with, if that's the culture that you've attached yourself to, if that's the image that you are or you would want to maintain as you interact, project as you interact with others socially, then we're going to have to change your personality. And the extraction... The modification, taking that out of, can be a bit difficult. After all, when do you smoke? <laughs> when you wake up. When do you smoke? Well, after you eat. When do you smoke? Right before you go to bed. When do you smoke? Not only after you get up, but between when you get up and when you eat. And when do you smoke? Between breakfast and lunch and lunch and dinner. And when do you smoke? Between dinner and going to bed. It becomes part of your entire conscious existence. For all, for all I know, people have told me this, you smoke in your sleep. There's many people, particularly when they've stopped using, that dream about smoking. That is how much it becomes part of who you are. Yes, it's all biochemical. But if it's a matter of then the nicotine being relatively easy, it may make you feel horrible for a day or two, but it's not going to have the long term as with the opiates, the cravings that go on for up to 36 months. Some, it might be longer. 
most it's within six months, you're not going to have the cravings. But if it's easier on a physiological level, then the only reason people aren't doing more of that or would necessitate anything additional than white knuckling, cold turkey, abstinence is psychological, which doesn't mean it isn't powerful. It just means you have to address it. That's what cognitive behavior therapy does. It addresses that cognitive, how you think. Behavior, how you act. Cognitive, how you come up with problems, solutions, how you identify problems. Come up with solutions. Behavior, how you implement those solutions. It is who you are. I said that earlier. By definition, what definition? The developmental model, you're supposed to do all that. You're an empirical creature. You're created to adapt. That's what's made you as a human of highest order on the planet. It's not that other animals don't do the same thing. They just don't do it to the same extent or level. They don't have the same intellectual cognitive capacity that humans do. Maybe there's an intuitive dimension of that, too. If it comes out of you, if it's genetically encoded in you, then why wouldn't we say intuitively you're going to be superior at that level, too? But when it comes to fight or flight, we're all pretty much the same. But we're talking about the higher cortical functions, functioning, the higher psychological operations besides just emotionally acting and reacting. Pleasure, pain, the hedonic system. We're more than animals. We have an enhancement. We're more than X's and O's. We have operational capacity systems that can take all those X's and O's and make them into images and help us move them around on the screen and cut and paste and drag and click and drop and all those things that otherwise artificial intelligence begins to give us some sort of way of understanding. You can do a lot of stuff. It just has to be attached to reality. What attaches it to reality? Yes, it is. (laughs) Basic life or death premise. But some things you can't and shouldn't kill. If you're always reacting out of an emotional, a sympathetic sort of reaction, fight or flight reaction, hedonic, pleasure, pain only reaction, which is really what happens when you take it only to the biochemical level and you stop using these higher cortical functions, as when you're an addict, as when you begin to turn to substances or experiences that really allow you to stop using brain and start just feeling or living only in feelings, that's all you're going to measure life by. (laughs) Pleasure, pain. Running away from it or killing it. But that's why we have the higher cortical functions. It's not adaptive in the long term. Not only does it not teach us about the world around us, employing what separates us from animals, including our ability not only to communicate with ourselves, but one another in such a way. As I'm doing right now, hopefully, the intention of the podcast, I keep saying that. I want to help you, even if I am not in a position to do more than just share information 
with you. It's helpful. Somebody out there might hear this and get better. That's the intent. I can go to somebody that's got a problem and say, hey, I hate to burst your bubble. You can do it too. I think you might have a problem. You need to talk to somebody about that. But it is when we operate or we realize we have to choose to operate in the higher is when then what otherwise it is innately in us to come out, the hypothetical deductive motto, motto, model, could be a motto, I want to live my life that way. If it, we want it to manifest itself, not only in the individual, but again in the family and in the community and in the communities that comprise the world, the nation, the globe that we live in, you've got to start with the individual first. You've got to teach them, socialize them, educate them in how to deal with reality. If we teach them fantasies, you can be whatever. It doesn't matter what your biology says. It does not matter what the physiology says. It doesn't even matter what the natural laws of science say. Oh, you're much above that and beyond. That's a lie. We are just as attached to the natural laws of science outside of us as we are to those inside of us. But when we run away so much, or even as we would then use those higher cortical functions only to facilitate our running away, not learning how to deal with, address the problems of life, society, realities, what we're going to get is we're just going to be emotional creatures. And we should be well aware of what that looks like because our society has progressively, slowly been in a state of decline. We are regressing. We are degrading into that type of behavior. And why wouldn't we? Because we think we can do anything. You don't need reality anymore. That's ultimately insane. That's so maladaptive. Because it doesn't matter what I think it should be. What matters is what it is. I have a say in that, but only to the extent that I can line up with what I know reality really is. If I don't problem solve, if I can't conceptualize, if I can't even identify the process how everything goes along a continuum of processing from something to nothing, from nothing to something. But it has an order to it. Not my order. I can influence again. But I can't change creativity. I can't change how life begins and is sustained. If I try to, I'm not going to win. And in the end, I'll cause a lot more harm. And I'll probably take if I share my ideas with anybody, a lot of people down with me, depending on how influential I might be and how much they want to hear what I have to say, if they want an easy out and I propagate, promulgate, that's the word, it's propagate, but it's promulgate. That kind of solution, I'm going to get a lot of followers, but I'm going to take them over the cliff, even as lemmings, remember that? They all go over the cliff together. I don't know why necessarily they do that. Maybe somebody's discovered that. Maybe it's something with the, the electromagnetic waves. I'm sure it is. But the notion of it is, if somebody told you to jump off a cliff, would you do it? No, it 
doesn't make any sense. Cognitive behavioral psychotherapy then allows the standard of natural realities to be identified where you are in the process of addressing any of those realities that might represent a threat to your life that otherwise kicks in the fight or flight, the sympathetic nervous system, but it encourages the engagement of the parasympathetic to the extent or degree of rational, reasoned thinking and thought and effectually turning off the biochemistry. Not biochemically so by just completely wiping it out or overcompensating, negating what otherwise is a really, again, we've said this in previous podcasts, well-established, developed, the, the, the intricacies of how all that works is just miraculous. It's an amazing thing to think inside of you you're calibrated to, to perfection, completion, balance. It's, it's incredible until we screw it up. And how do we screw it up? By thinking we can change reality. If we identify the markers, if we identify adaptability is, does it bring, always comes back to, does it bring more life? And in a constructive way, not only in an immediate sort of way, but sometimes with delayed sort of element, delayed gratification, I may have to put up with some pain now, but in the end, it's a much better It has much more probability of life. You have to analyze that. You have to think through it. Now, do you have to go see a psychologist, a counselor, psychological counseling, social worker, psychiatrist to do that? No. But if you're not doing it, and it's obvious you're not going to find the willpower inside yourself to do it, then seek the help. That's why we're here. That's what we do. That's cognitive behavioral therapy. It's not magic. It's not a trick. It's helping you to do what you need to do or implicitly you are created to do implicitly so that you could do it for yourself and the people around you. You can contribute in a positive, constructive way to all of us solving problems. We don't have to fix yours You can help us fix ours. And together, we've got a lot of shared problems that we have to address. But if you don't believe that, if you're not willing to add that to it, then you're probably going to take the lesser. And the lesser can be effective. Being on Suboxone for the rest of your life, as with opioid dependence, is better than being an opiate addict and wreaking havoc in all those ways, personal and otherwise. But you're really still not resolving problems. You're still requiring not only the suboxone, but somebody likely to tell you what to do and when to do it. It locks you in to not only medication assist on a long-term basis, but you'll need therapy for the rest of your life. Now, true, some people have genetically inspired, biochemically sort of manifested emotional problems, psychological problems that will require medicine. But even then, if it's not one of those, if it's not chronic, if you don't begin by just saying right out of the gate, this is a disease and I'm all going to be on this forever, 
you may have a chance to be one of those that doesn't have to be on it forever. You may be one of those that has a chance to not have to attend psychological counseling or see a psychiatrist for medication for the rest of your life. Would that not be a consideration? Am I saying everybody who has either a, a mental health issue, psychological problem, or specific to our conversation today, some substance use disorder, does everybody have to then somehow get to the point where they don't need that help or they should? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying if you don't need it, don't have to have it for your entire life, then we need to at least consider that so that we might alleviate that. For those that need it, then you'll need it. We'll try. We'll try to intervene. We'll try to assist, but we'll look at each other and say, well, you may be of that percentage of folks that need that. That's okay, too. It's better than not. But we do not want to disable you only because you've not either learned in the first place, or if you've learned, you've chosen to forget, or you've somehow, by running from reality, not wanting to address realities, problem solve, use these higher cortical functions to solve problems, to mature, to develop, to continue to grow, to help others, to help your society, your world, you've chosen instead to use your brain power to help you run away from problems, to relegate you or to bring you down to the dimension of being an emotional creature at best, reactively so, fight or flight, hedonically pleasure pain driven, that's no life. And in the end, because you're not adaptive, you can't even admit to yourself this thing is going to kill you. Remember, that's what we said, rationalization. Why most folks don't go off in nicotine. <laughs> Somehow the ones that don't. There's most, most do, but the ones that don't, the majority of those, are rationalizing. Not going to be me. I'm not the one. I can do this. It's not going to kill me. Well, it could. Might not. Percentages are very small. But the likelihood is you're just lying to yourself. And that really is what a defense mechanism is, is a lie, a deception. Now, on the front end of it, you may have to because things are overwhelming. Some things are so overwhelming you can't deal with them. But if you persist in lying to yourself, especially if I'm right, that it's innately in you to face reality, to know reality, reality not only as somebody has taught you that, but intuitively, the two correspond. It comes from within you as well as we should educate you from the outside, externally. Then you're lying to yourself. And you're lying to others. And if others allow you to do that, you're codependent. This is the essential crux of cognitive behavioral therapy. If you're seeing a therapist right now that's not doing this, then shame on them. If you now know this and you're going to continue to go, shame on you <laughs> because now you know. You can say you don't know, but it's no longer a matter of innocence or ignorance. Now it's a matter of, again, willed deceit. You're lying to yourself. So, I said that twice today, coming to conclusion, what I'd like to say once more as in all 
I believe, every one of our previous podcasts, I'm here to try to educate. My great hope is that I'm speaking to either one who's unfortunately fallen into the trap of substance use disorder or one who knows one. Uh, But the education, the information is designed to help. First, to generate insight and awareness to identify the problem, but then also know how to get help and the modalities of treatment, what's available. Now, again, as I've said probably in most podcasts, I'd love to help you personally, and I post my email address so that you can reach out to me. But, again, due to the restrictions, not my licensure that restricts, but right now, if I'm not licensed in your state, simply because I can't be licensed in 50 states, that is a monumental task to try to keep up with all those licensure issues. And there's not a universal licensure for all 50 states yet. But if you're in one of those states that I can't practice in, we can do telemedicine if you are. If it's one of those states that I have not applied for and received my licensure in, then I can refer you to somebody in your state, try to help you find somebody. I'll probably direct you to the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration's facility locator. I won't do it out of a personal sort of preference. I'll do it based on what they have listed, and they have facilities listed in all states. But I'll be glad to look at that and say, well, you should go to their website. It looks like these facilities that are listed on SAMHSA are the ones that you might want to check out. I will direct you to that treatment. Because in the end, it's not about benefiting me so much as it is about benefiting you. But the benefit to me would be that I could help. And if somebody's in the business for any other reason than wanting to help, then you, again, probably shouldn't go see them. Nonetheless, I would hope that uh, at least over the the time that we've had uh, conversation that you've discerned or could tell, uh, I'm not interested in manipulating you or taking advantage of you for any personal gain as much as it would be, again, to help. And if you're okay with that, even if you shouldn't email me, if you want to join us, I'd love to encourage you to join us again for our next podcast of Word. And who am I? (laughs) Dr. Michael David Clay. And once again, I want to thank you for joining us today.